Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Opera Offstage. Merry Christmas, you guys. Happy holidays. What a festive time to be living right now. My name's Jessie. My- what? <laughs> I'm literally looking... <laughs> I'm literally looking head at your name. Empty. Head empty. <laughs> oh my god, keep that in, please. I said it with such confidence, too. Who am I? Oh goodness. Um, okay, I am not Jesse. I <laughs> apparently I am having a personality, um, an identity crisis over here. I'm Jesse. Um, I'm Michelle. <laughs> Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. We're having a time. (laughs) Wow. What a time to be alive. Today's episode is going to be us going through a bunch of carols and Christmas operas and just talking about kind of the weird history of some of this music. But before we get into that, for better or for worse, I have a little Christmas challenge for Michelle. Oh my goodness. I'm not sure it's the best idea on the day that you don't remember your own name. Who am I? <laughs> yes, yeah, step one. What is your name? Oh my gosh. Hi, guys. I'm Michelle. <laughs> so I, Michelle, you are a self-professed Christmas hoe. Truly. Official And title. so I thought a fun, little, uh, a fun little game to ask is, can you name oh God. the eight reindeer <laughs> and... The 12 days of Christmas. You are so rude. <laughs> Jessie knows on, for Michelle. a fact. She knows for a fact I don't know this information. I, I have a better chance of getting the reindeer. I am hopeless when it comes to the 12 days of Christmas. I should have come up with a prize for this. Oh, yeah. Where's my little spicy incentive? A spicy incentive. <laughs> oh, goodness. I will get you a $10 coffee bean <gasps> gift card for... For oh either god. challenge or both, if you can get both. Oh my god, my life depends on it now. Um, All right. <laughs> okay, shoot. Okay, I'm gonna start off with the reindeer because if I have a better chance, <laughs> there's definitely the little reindeer. So there's uh, me trying to sing the song in my head. So there's Dasher uh-huh. and Prancer and Donner and shoot, I don't remember if it's Blitzen or Vixen. I'm gonna go with Blitzen. There's Comet and Cupid and frickin' something. Shoot. Okay, wait. Repeat the ones you've already said, because I've already lost count. Oh my god, why do you do this to me? How am I supposed to remember what I just said? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can always review the tapes, and if I'm wrong about you getting all of them, I will will (laughs) tell you. Okay. There's... Okay, there's Dasher and Prancer, Donner, and... I'm gonna go with Vixen. (laughs) I think there's one named Prancer comet cupid and then we'll go with blitzen but that feels wrong and then did i (gasps) and then (laughs) who do you recall the most famous reindeer of all little rudolph the red-nosed reindeer yeah but that one's free like everyone knows that one (laughs) yeah you got are you saying that oh wait (gasps) oh (laughs) apparently originally donner's name was donder (laughs) oh but anyway, I do not know him. I kept laughing when you were like, I'm going to say Blitzen or Vixen, and they are both in there. And I was like, oh, Michelle, okay, no. that's what I thought. You're right. Because there's like a Ixen, you know, dancer like twice. <laughs> oh, shit. You did it. Man. My biggest problem with the reindeer was always that I would forget how many there were. Yeah. I only would know it because of the song, because of the way that the little melody goes. Um, okay, Santa, did you see that? I was a good girl. I remembered all your little reindeer friends. 12 days of Christmas, I'm screwed. I literally, I would be lying to you if I I didn't tell you that I zone out so hard on that. Like, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel bad because I'm sure people really do enjoy singing this song. Like, we do this at my church every year. Yeah, I I have an issue with with this, just the chaos that is this song. But, okay, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me... Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the first day, Michelle. God, the only thing I freaking know is five golden rings. Um, there's a there's a little partridge in a pear tree. Yes. Is that the first day? Yes. Is that what I got on the first day? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> me personally, you are struggling um, on day one. 
fire trees in a pear tree. I was thinking, Dirty Christmas. My true love gave to me two turtle doves. Mm-hmm. Th- three. We have a whole <laughs> podcast to get through. Maybe I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> I give up. Tell me. <laughs> Do you really not know? The third My day? brain was like three pots of clanking, <laughs> and that's for sure. That's not even. That's the thirteenth day of Christmas. <laughs> the cursed Christmas is day when people of Christmas. Just come out with their pots and clang them. Um, I literally, besides that, I only know that there are like ladies dancing and and it is at, in order from twelve even, to. I one. don't even know what's the twelfth day of Christmas. Twelve. What do you get drumming. on the twelfth day? Oh God. Okay, wait. Give us a rundown. Because the last two, the last two are instruments. Pipers piping. Mm-hmm. Is one of them. And then the two before that, the ten and nine, are movement. So it's ten lords ladies, leaping ladies. and nine ladies dancing. Why are these lords a-leaping? <laughs> what are these lords doing leaping about? Eight maids a-milking. And then you've got more birds. So you've got seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five golden oh, rings, four calling birds. How could I forget about the geese? Three French hens, two turtle doves, a partridge in a pear tree. This is a very bird-heavy gift. Wait, I don't understand the, I don't understand the, the mil, the, wait, the maids of milking? As yeah. in, like, cows? Yeah. Why the heck would you want, be like, hey, babe, look what I got you. And, like, he opens the door, there's just, like, these ladies straight up chilling with these cows. Like, what do you do with that? you probably sell the milk. It's lame. I feel like the Lord's <laughs> a-leaping is the bigger question. I like that. That, to me, is like a bachelorette party where, like, a stripper pops out of the cake. Like, you got all these lords a When Michelle gets married, I'm not getting you a stripper. I'm just going to get you a ballet dancer who leaps about. Well, you know what? You won one $10 gift card to Coffee Bean. And you know what? That's enough. But we could not take the hour and a half it would have taken you to even begin to guess the rest of those days. I never would have gotten the When in doubt, though, guess birds. True. Like, let's see. One... Two, three, four, five, six of these are birds. Half of these gifts are birds. I can't believe birds. I forgot about the geese. All right. Well, oh, nice. let's get to our announcements. <laughs> wow. I would like to thank all of my Michelle. fans for supporting me as I won a $10 gift card. I am feeling so blessed. You are at you're, least you're Santa. Jesse. 50% Christmas hoe. I am Santa. <laughs> I'm only partially fake Christmas fan. Only half a fake Christmas fan. Oh, uh, gosh. All right, Jesse, give us some announcements. So, first and foremost, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy whatever you celebrate. We're happy to have you here. In order to celebrate, we have a Christmas YouTube video coming out tomorrow. So if you want to see more of Michelle and I trying to guess the 12 days of Christmas or understand why I knew Michelle would struggle with it, go check out our YouTube <laughs> video where we rank all of the Christmas carols and a couple popular Christmas songs in their order. Tell us if you agree or disagree with us. We had a lot of fun with it. And we have some very strong feelings about children who sing. Oh, yeah. And... While you're watching that video, why don't you sip on some delicious mulled wine? Because I have put up a mulled wine recipe for our Christmas cocktail. It's very easy, it's very simple, and it's not terribly expensive to make. It's also really good to share. And we based it off of La Boheme, which of course has a beautiful Christmas market scene. So go check out that video. And then there's a detailed recipe on our blog right now. Yes. And if you are looking for a holiday steal, our ebooks, our social media guide, and our role study guide, and a bundle of the two are all on sale on our website. You can check that out at opera-offstage.com. And if you guys are just lying awake at night wondering what you could get Jesse and I for Christmas, we would really appreciate it if you scroll down, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a little review. That would make us so happy. Yeah. Or if you haven't, go follow us on Instagram. We're really close to our goal for the year, and I would love to see us reach it. Yeah. And just like a little reminder from us to you is to be very safe this holiday season. I know it's tricky. I know we all want to see our friends and family, but especially if you live in the U.S., it is a very fraught time for us. It is not safe to gather with people in general. So, you know, make good choices because we want everyone, we want all of you guys to stay safe and healthy during this season. So celebrate wisely. I'm really excited for this episode because, um, you know, especially as musicians and classical musicians, we sing this same Christmas rep 
like every year. But so often we don't spend the time wondering and researching like why the heck and how the heck all of this music came about. So we're going to dive into some Christmas carols, some of the wild stories behind how those were written and their weird history. We're going to talk about Christmas operas and why there aren't a ton and why we don't perform them as often as we would expect. And then just play some games at the end. So let's dive right in. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, like where do Christmas carols come from? Like where did caroling come from? And it's actually like a lot of things having to do with Christmas pagan <laughs> the origin is pagan <laughs> the word probably comes from the french word carole which is a dance accompanied by singing and as a person who has done a lot of weird choreography and choirs i'm really glad that whatever dances may have gone along with these have not survived stop not choreography choreography i hate choreography <laughs> so much so i'm glad now it's mostly a singing thing but these were actually uh, mostly pagan songs for events such as the winter solstice which you know eventually when christianity became legal in the roman empire christmas kind of took the place of the winter solstice celebrations and therefore they took on a lot of those traditions okay. and so a lot of these have a pagan history and one of the ones i didn't realize has a very lush pagan history is carol of the bells which i think everyone mm. anyone who's ever been at a choir has sung carol of the bells or knows carol of the bells you imitate a bell and you sing. <laughs> you know what gets me really hype is that one like full like orchestra rock version. Oh, the. Do you know? Yes. I don't know who does it, but that one gets me so hype. But in any other situation. Trans-Siberian Carol... Orchestra. Thank you. Carol of the Bells stresses me out. It gives me big anxiety. <laughs> I don't know why. Right. So the origin of this, though, is that it's a Ukrainian pagan folk chant where uh, the song itself was believed to have magical properties. And it wasn't a winter solstice song, actually. It was meant for New Year's Eve, mm. which in the calendar that they had at the time would have been around January 13th. So the original text talks about a swallow flying into a household to proclaim that there would be a plentiful and bountiful new year. There is one line that I particularly like, which is that you will have a beautiful, dark-eyebrowed wife. Oh, and I was like, ah, yes, <laughs> eyebrows. The true, the true telling of a beautiful woman is her dark, lush eyebrows. It me. Yeah, I won't read you all the lyrics, but that particular lyric uh, really jumped out to me. But <laughs> what used to happen was young girls would go from house to house in celebration of the new year, and they would sing the song, which foretold that your house would have good fortune, and they would be given baked goods and treats, which is pretty similar to what we think of with like the older history of caroling. You know, oh, give us some figgy pudding. It fits in with that oh. idea. But in 1916, which there was a choir director, Alexander... Koishts. I'm trying my best. These are Ukrainian names and Koishts, Kosht, Koshts, Koshts. I don't speak Ukrainian. Sure. Who, I apologize to anyone who does know how these are pronounced. He commissioned Mykola Leontovich. I'm doing my best to write a song based on the Ukrainian folk melody. So part of the actual tune is taken from the original chant, and you can kind of hear it in kind of the oddly, no offense to the original uh, folk chant. But the kind of ominous sound that it sometimes has at towards the opening of it. Mm -hmm. The impending doom. Yeah. It does kind of have like a, a very strange feeling to it, which would both be from the fact that like it's an old chant, but also has to do with the fact that it wasn't really written for that kind of thing. So he created True. a completely new work for choir, which is Shedrik is what I'm going to go with for that. Jesse, you and I need to get a Russian tutor. This isn't even Russian. Because we we're really good. Ukrainian. Yeah, but we need to get some sort of, like, tutor from that general area because you and I know how to pronounce everything except for anything Czech, Ukrainian, or and Russian. And we end up talking about it all the time. All the time. <laughs> if you know Russian, reach out to us. <laughs> or Ukrainian. Yeah, if you know a good Russian tutor, please tell me. We need help. <laughs> um, so he creates an entirely new work, but it is still pagan. It still uses the pagan lyrics. Like, the whole point is that it celebrates the Ukrainian New Year. But it actually starts to get really popular on its own as a pagan tune. And as a pagan, not pagan, but as a Ukrainian choir piece. Including in the United States, where it was performed to a sold-out audience in 1921 in Carnegie Hall. Ooh. So it actually became really popular, even on its own. 
So anyway, an American choir director, Peter Wilhowski, heard this work and it reminded him of the sound of bells. So he wrote new lyrics to the tune that conveyed what he heard. Um, and he publishes that mm. in 1936. And it, it's kind of funny that he was able to publish it considering that it was already a published work. Uh, and he was basically just lifting the arrangement that Leontovich had made. Oh, these stinky Americans. Yeah, well, you think he would have a, a bone to pick about this, <laughs> except for the fact that actually Leontovich had been assassinated by the Bolshevik secret police um, in the year before Hello? the release of the piece in the U.S. Yeah, so you, what you actually don't know about more of the history of this piece is that it came out during a time of like really intense political upheaval in Ukraine. And so the actual composer died before it actually premiered in the U.S. and before an American composer actually kind of stole it and turned it into the Christmas song that we now sing. Dang, that's kind of hardcore. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's it's kind of wild because, first of all, the song had nothing to do with Christmas. And then the updated song had nothing really to do with Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it, and then the revised stolen American version then had to do with Christmas. How interesting. Also, I want to know what the heck was going on with Leontovich. Why was he assassinated by the secret police? The secret police were like, this song is too much of a bop. We got to take this beat um, out. He apparently was participating in the independence movement for Ukraine. Aww. There was questions about whether or not he was using his music to transport certain papers and documents. This guy sounds like 007. I'm excited to actually do some more research on this guy. There are a lot of questions surrounding particularly why, but I, I don't think most people do know. Yeah. But I mean, I, it's insane. But I thought that was such such a wild story because I knew that this, I had been told already that Carol LaBelle's had a pagan history, but I didn't realize that like it wasn't until well into like the 20th century that it became the song it is now or that they changed the lyrics or that it's essentially a stolen piece, which rude. Yeah. I had no clue it was Ukrainian. I didn't realize that there was a different history to it. But it like it does fit the history of caroling, even when it was, you know, a New Year's Eve song. But you'll see in the history of carols, there's a ton of stuff like this where they've taken a tune uh, and they've layered Christian lyrics on top of it. And another song that I didn't realize had a history very similar to this is What Child Is This? Which, first of all, one of my favorite titles for a song. This kid is this. What's this baby doing here? Who's whose child? Baby, why you here? What child is this? Oh. Which child? Whose child? While the lyrics of what child is this are pretty like pretty Christmassy, you know, it's just about Jesus's birth. The original melody is actually from a song called Green Sleeves, which you've probably come across if you've ever opened like a beginner piano book. I, that's actually where I recognize Greensleeves the most from is like it's almost in every beginner piano book that I remember having. Oh, yeah. And Greensleeves has nothing to do with Christmas or Jesus. In fact, it's a rather sexy song. Sexy, sad song. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, if you go through the lyrics <laughs> of Greensleeves, it's about a spurned lover accusing Lady Greensleeves. Of, oh, uh, <laughs> I thought you were talking about what child oh, is this? Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. Who's sad, who's, sexy child? Who's sexy <laughs> baby horrible. is this? <laughs> Consider cutting oh, that out. No. <laughs> oh, this makes me think of all the buff baby Jesus paintings from the Renaissance. Um, where Jesus oh, is like God. a baby, but he has a six pack. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. Whoa. If you haven't seen those, go look them up. No, the original Green Sleeves has some sexy connotations. It is a... Sp okay, there we go. It's a spurned lover <laughs> saying that Lady Green Sleeves has pushed him away despite the fact that he loved her and he paid for her lodgings and he bought her, you know, a, a dress and a gown and a necklace and housing. So basically, uh, it's, it's a weird version of Gold Digger from the like 1580s what a time to be alive yeah it's it's basically gold calling her a, a little bit of a gold digger but also like come back to me like <laughs> um some people thought that it was henry the eighth and that he had written it for anne boleyn which has its own connotations but most people think it's elizabethan it's a little it's a little bit later mm -hmm. but anyway the other thing i learned by reading about this is that turns out green clothing was kind of another way of calling someone a hoe how rude. Green is my favorite color. I know. I was going to say, I was, gonna say <laughs> I was like, listen, I'm not saying anything, but green is Michelle's favorite color. 
and nobody's ever said anything <laughs> I wear about green blue every Christmas. <laughs> Nobody said anything about blue being the color for a hoe, so I feel safe. <laughs> I'm upset. But the idea is that you would get grass stains on your dress while uh, perhaps <laughs> uh, having sex outside, where you would if you m- were oh. having um, maybe an Yikes. illicit affair. Yeah, like Ooh. so green gown. Um, there's a book called Women's Roles in the Renaissance, and the phrase a green gown has to do with the idea that you would get grass stains on yourself while uh, partaking in some salacious activities. Right? Ooh, some promiscuous behavior. What a fun thing to learn, and what a, what a how much that would have changed my reading of some things I had to read in school, I don't know. <laughs> Literally me playing green sleeves in a practice room. He's saying I paid for all these things and you pushed me away, but he's also kind of calling her a whore. Mixed feelings on that how one. How rude. How rude. It also might connotate like a prostitute. The poem might be talking about a prostitute. To put it simply, an odd choice to later put a Christmas carol <laughs> over. And there is actually an older carol written for it called The Manger Throne, which I think just proves that anything that people tried to put over the song, they gave a weird name to. Yeah. But then in 1865, uh, Sir John Stainer, the composer behind certain arrangements of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen and Good King Wenceslas, uh, got a hold of the poem written by William Chatterton Dix and put it over this. And that is the version we sing today. What child is this? But it's actually a sad love song that calls the woman a hoe. <laughs> so there you go. Next time you sing What Child Is This, just remember it was a man being like, you're sexy and kind of a hoe, but I like it. Please come back. <laughs> what a time to be alive. What oh, a trip. Yeah. Never would have known. But speaking of horny Christmas, this is not the only horny Christmas carol. <laughs> Deck the Halls has some conspicuously changed lyrics. Oh, no. So Deck the Halls is actually based on a 16th century song from Wales. And it is also a New Year's song originally. All these New Year's songs. I didn't know that there were so many New Year's songs. I know. I, there's so many. I, I only knew the uh, Auld Lang Syne. Mm-hmm. That's the only one I could think of, but it turns out we've just changed them all into Christmas songs. There are New Year's songs. The Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly, fa-la-la-la. Uh, it used to be, oh, how soft my fair one's bosom. Only men would write something like that. <laughs> That's very true. That's only fair. men. But also, it's very funny to me that... <laughs> That was like, that's the change. I This is one of those things where I just can't imagine looking at a song and be like, no, 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 let me change this. But yeah, it was, oh, how soft my fair one's bosom. Oh, how sweet the grove and blossom. Oh, how blessed are the blisses, words of love and mutual kisses. I'm sure it sounds better word wise in Welsh than it does in English, but it's very funny to me. I really don't. I don't like, oh, how soft my fair one's bosom. Fa la 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 So Thomas Oliphant who kind of, this was his thing. He would take old melodies and just slap new lyrics on them. And that's kind of what he did. He took this Welsh folk song and he added lyrics to make it a Christmas song, Deck the Halls. But even his version has been changed. So it turns out, actually, Dom We Now Our Gay Apparel uh, was an edition made 20 years after his version was published. Which was funny, because I think that's Hmm. always the line that sticks out to people, only because we don't use gay in the same way anymore. Nor do mm-hmm. I have any ho- clothing I would personally call happy. <laughs> my my clothing speaks of uh, <laughs> seasonal depression and oh, sleepiness. Confession. No, but the original line is, fill the mead cup, drain the barrel. What I'm saying is, we've made our Christmas carols a lot more lame. They used to be a lot sexier and drunker. <laughs> oh, gosh. Don't let anyone tell you that they were more prudish in, in the old days. They were not. Not in the slightest. The other Christmas Carol story that really caught my eye in terms of just a lot of changes that you wouldn't expect. So Hark the Herald Angels Sing, very, very popular. I don't think I've ever gone a Christmas without singing it for a church or for a choir concert. And I think it's also because it's just kind of easy for people to sing. Yeah. But the original tune was written by one of the founders of the Methodist Church, Charles Wesley. Um, and the original line was, Hark how all the Welkin rings. Glory to the King of Kings. Does not slap the same way. Yeah, Welkin, Welkin doesn't work great. So then, once again, 20 years later, somebody comes along, a preacher named George Whitefield, was like, maybe we should make it a little less odd, and maybe it'll really catch on. And he changes it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Now, Wesley was pissed, the, the Methodist guy. 
very upset um, because the Bible does not say that the herald angels sing. Um, and he's very pedantic about that fact. And he says, I don't want to be accountable either for the nonsense or the doggerel of other men. But it doesn't matter because if you oh? open up a hymn book and you see Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it will attribute the lyrics to Wesley, regardless. Um, but the original tune for the song also changes because the original tune is not the one we sing. The version we sing is actually uh, Mendelssohn's. Oh, good old Mendy. But there's a problem with this. <laughs> I hate the fact I just called Mendelssohn Mendy. Nah, I'm good so with sorry. it. <laughs> the original tune is actually something that Mendelssohn wrote for the 400-year anniversary of the invention of the printing press. It was a song for Gutenberg, but he recognized that once the anniversary had passed... What? He recognized that once the anniversary had passed, most people probably wouldn't want to sing a song about Gutenberg. People aren't that hyped on the printing press. So he, he wrote in a letter that he didn't really mind if people put new words to the song, except for one little rule, as long as they weren't religious. Because Mendelssohn Oops. was a rather secular composer. And, of course, uh, instead, <laughs> somebody recognized that, the, that that tune worked really well with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, so we've been singing a Christmas carol that neither the original writer of the text nor the composer actually would want to happen. Wow. And yet we sing it every year. We sing it all the time against the wishes of both of those people because no one cares what they think. Anyway. <laughs> we love to hear it. Yeah. So all it is to say is that the history of Christmas carols is actually quite funny if you dig into it. And there are tons and tons of Christmas carols. This is just a couple of the histories that I decided to pull because they tickled me in one way or another. <laughs> but I think it is funny to go back into these and see how some of them are based on very salacious tunes and some of them are based on, you know, very pagan things. And that Christmas as a whole, like I said, does come out of a lot of actual pagan rituals, which is why there was a point in history when Christmas caroling was banned. Wow. Wow. When Oliver Cromwell, who if you've ever studied European history, you probably know a little bit about him. But when Oliver Cromwell takes over England, he brings his puritanical views with him, which means that he is not a big fan of anything that comes out of pagan ritual. The idea that you would sing and dance and celebrate and feast seemed wasteful to him and very, once again, pagan. So they ban it. And they ban it for about 16 years. He doesn't like those lords a-leaping. They not only ban caroling, they actually, they ban the Feast of Christmas. Shoot. He's the Grinch. Yeah. But it turns out that even during this time... For like the almost two decades that this happened, people still gathered in England and still celebrated and still sang. Like they, despite the fact that like there was a, they could be punished for it, it still didn't stop them. That's how popular Christmas carols are. And like how strong the desire to celebrate Christmas is. That not even... This is literally the Grinch. Oliver Cromwell, by the way, was a very foreboding figure. Like, and his puritanical rule was, is well known for a reason. Um, so it is actually fascinating that people were so excited about Christmas that they they could not be stopped from from reveling. Um, and actually, even during this time period, you can see in diaries of like noblemen and things from this era, they're they get really pissed off because they can hear all of all the peasantry celebrating <laughs> on Christmas. <laughs> That's like literally what I'm imagining. Yeah, it basically, Cromwell's basically the Grinch. I love that so much. Uh, except for he doesn't learn his lesson, he's murdered, and then uh, Christmas comes back. Oh? <laughs> oh, oh. Bit different. <laughs> Bit of a different time. Wait, no, never mind. He's not murdered. He actually dies, and then they posthumously execute him. They get his body back out, execute him, and put him back in the ground. Oh, no. Um, but the fact that we still have uh, Christmas carols from before this time, because this is in the 1640s, uh, 1642 to 1660. So the fact that we still have carols from before and after this time, like the fact that they live and survive this period is kind of a little, you know, star on the fact that the that the Christmas carol is so recognizable. And so it is one of the few, I think, it really enduring folk song traditions that almost everyone who who celebrates 
or even some people who don't celebrate like you know of them and you sing them because they're fun yeah and the fact that that still happens 500 years later is kind of a miracle it is cool there's not a lot of folk song tradition that both religious and non-religious people partake in it's true yeah but i just find it fascinating (laughs) that um it survived that time period yeah no that's interesting also the fact that he's just killed they're like, we want Christmas back. Bye. <laughs> I don't I don't think that was the tipping point, but uh, I'm sure it was part of it. I know, I know. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, though, uh, Christmas opera? Because that is the harder thing to research, personally. Yeah, I know. Everybody's wondering, where the heck are our Christmas operas, right? And this kind of ties back a little bit. This gives me the same vibes as our, like, why are there not a lot of spooky operas? But we have some reasons as to why Christmas operas are a little bit more elusive. So we start to see Christmas operas pop up in the early 17th century. And the reason we don't see a ton of them for so long is because there was a ban on secular works during Advent, which means any works performed had to be religious in tone and usually had to surround the nativity. And well into the 19th century, public theaters in Italy and other Catholic countries were closed during the season of Advent and would reopen after December 26th. So it's like people really couldn't put on operas because public theaters were closed. Interesting enough, because theaters opened back up on the 26th, we have lots of premieres of works on this day, but they were often secular and not Christmas themed because Christmas had already passed. Oh, that's so wild. Um, I guess that's hard to think yeah. about because in like m- modern American Christianity, if you were closed on Christmas, like if you didn't have a Christmas service, it would be wild. Right? Yeah. It's crazy to think of, of theaters being closed during this time because this is one of the most like active times for performers. So they were off doing other things. But during Advent, operas on religious themes were accompanied by uh, elaborate staging, which would take place of secular operas, and those were called Azioni Sacre. And good old Gagliano and Jacopo Perry wrote kind of what we consider one of the first big Christmas operas, which is Il Gran Natale di Cristo Salvatore Nostro, or The Great Nativity of Christ, Our Savior. And that was first performed on Christmas Day in 1622, um, and it's one of the earliest Christmas operas of this type. We love Perry. Yeah. So fast forward... Advent restrictions were no longer in place during the second half of the 19th century. And because of this, we got to see new operas on a variety of Christmas themes, usually actually premiering during the Christmas season, which is pretty cool. Um, Obviously, a lot of the content of these Christmas operas still surrounded the nativity itself or figures closely connected to it, such as the Three Magi and other operas focused on Christmas celebrations or traditional figures around Christmas, such as, you know, St. Nick, Father Christmas, King Wenceslas, all that kind of stuff. And Nikolai Golgol's short story Christmas Eve has been the inspiration of three Russian language operas. Tchaikovsky's Vakula the Smith in 1876, its revised version, I shoot, Sherevichki. Once again, please send us your recommendations (laughs) for Russian language teachers. Thank you. Yeah. 1887, and then Rimsky-Korsakov's Christmas Eve in 1895. So lots of uh, Russian language operas around that story. There's also been like nine operas based on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which I had no idea. One of them's in German and one's in Italian, and I have never heard of that. I I love that the implication is, and I'm not saying this is true, is that none of them were very good. (laughs) Because we don't hear anything. I've never heard any music from any of these, even though that's an immensely popular story with many movie versions and many other things. Yeah, I'm like, where are these nine operas then? Yeah. Like, if you know, let us know. But with all that being said, undoubtedly the Christmas opera that's received the most commercial success is Manotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, right? If you're going to find any of these Christmassy operas, it's probably that one. Yeah. Well, that's a true Christmas opera, too. Because I, for the cocktail, I chose La Boheme because it does have a Christmas scene in it, like the Christmas market that happens in Act 2. But that's not really mm-hmm. a Christmas opera. <laughs> it just happens to take place during winter. It's like that, like, is Die Hard a Christmas film meme going around because it, like, takes place around Christmas. Yeah. 
Oh, same vibe. My favorite, uh, <laughs> my favorite thing in the world was somebody who said, "My father insists that." I saw a tweet the other day that says, "My father insists that Lord of the Rings is a Christmas movie because there are elves in it," mm-hmm. which to me is the hottest of takes. The hottest take. I, for one, Truly. will be incorporating that into my Christmas tradition <laughs> for the same reason. <laughs> Oh goodness! Incredible. I'm telling my um, but... I'm telling my children this is the store. <laughs> oh my god! These are Santa's elves. Let's watch Lord of the Rings. <laughs> this is the Christmas story, kids. Oh my goodness! Just Jesse things. <laughs> but Manoti's A Mall in the Night Visitors actually holds a lot of really cool cultural and historic significance it was it premiered by the nbc opera theater on december 24th in 1951 as the inaugural presentation made by the newly created hallmark hall of fame um it was <laughs> the original hallmark channel. i know <laughs> a mall in the night visitors is a hallmark movie <laughs> convince me otherwise it was immensely popular at its premiere and was dubbed actually by Life magazine as the Christmas classic in 1952, just to give you an idea of how truly popular it was. Pressure for the Hallmark movie channel to make a movie version of A Mall in the Night Visitors. Sending out emails today. <laughs> um, even though it was the first opera written specifically for television, Minotti never intended the work to remain solely confined to the medium of television and did encourage people to take it to the actual stage. And it's pretty cool. I'm going to read this like short little um, blurb about why he decided to, to write it. And I think it's actually very sweet. But uh, the booklet that came with the original cast recording contains the following anecdote. And Minotti says... This is an opera for children because it tries to recapture my own childhood. You see, when I was a child, I lived in Italy, and in Italy, we have no Santa Claus. I suppose that Santa Claus is too busy with American children to be able to handle Italian children as well. Our gifts were brought to us by the Three Kings instead. I never actually met the Three Kings, and it didn't matter how hard my little brother and I tried to keep away at night to keep to catch a glimpse of the royal three visitors we would always fall asleep just before they arrived but i do remember hearing them i remember the weird cadence of their song in the dark distance i remember the brittle sound of the camel's hooves crushing the frozen snow and i remember the mysterious tinkling of their silver bridles my favorite king was king melchior because he was the oldest and had a long white beard my brother's favorite was king casper he insisted that the king was a little crazy and quite deaf I don't know why he was so positive about his being deaf. <laughs> I suspect it was because dear King Caspar never brought him all the gifts he requested. He was also rather puzzled by the fact that King Caspar carried the myrrh, which appeared to him as a rather eccentric gift, for he never quite understood what the word meant. To these three kings, I mainly owe the happy Christmas season of my childhood, and I should have remained very grateful to them. Instead, I came to America and soon forgot all about them, for here at Christmas time, one sees so many Santa Clauses scattered all over town. Then there is a big Christmas tree in the Rockefeller Plaza and the elaborate toy windows on Fifth Avenue, the 100-voice choir in Grand Central Station, the innumerable Christmas carols on radio and television. All these things made me forget the three dear old kings of my childhood. But in 1951, I found myself in a serious difficulty. I had been commissioned by the National Broadcasting Company to write an opera for television with a Christmas deadline, and I simply didn't have one idea in my head. One November afternoon, as I was walking rather gloomily through the rooms of the Metropolitan Museum, I chanced to stop in front of the Adoration of the Kings by Bosch, and as I was looking at it, suddenly I heard again, coming from the distant blue hills, the weird song of the Three Kings. I then realized they had come back to me and had brought me a gift. I am often asked how I went about writing an opera for television and what the specific problems that I had to face in planning a work for such a medium. I must confess that in writing A Mall in the Night Visitors, I hardly thought of television at all. As a matter of fact, all my operas are originally conceived for an ideal stage which has no equivalent in reality, and I believe that such is the case with most dramatic authors. Signed, Minotti. I love that. I know it's a longer excerpt, but I love the fact that he's just, he's given this deadline, he's given this project, he has no idea what to do, and then by chance, he like recalls this really deep-rooted part of his childhood experience around the holidays, 
And he, I love when he says well, the yeah. three magi came back to me and they gave me a gift. I just think that's the sweetest little thing ever. And you always forget that, like, obviously not everyone celebrates Christmas in the same way. And Santa wasn't a figure in many cultures and wasn't the main figure of Christmas for a ton of cultures. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a nice little backstory, no, you know, as told by Manotti himself. Yeah. Oh. And while a mall in the night visitors has been largely ignored by major companies, it has been performed and recorded by the Royal Opera and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And, of course, is still a favorite of small opera companies and conservatories. Yeah, but let's talk about, like, uh, why that probably happened. It's because that show calls for three bases. <laughs> that is the Monotius. biggest of asks. And a, a, an incredible boy True. soprano. Which isn't to say there aren't modern, great boy sopranos, but there definitely are less than there used to be, especially even in the early or mid-20th century. Which is probably for the yeah, best in terms they're... of people's childhoods, but... <laughs> Not great if you have a show True. that requires a boy soprano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's cool because after that came out, a lot more people were interested in creating musical works for television. So it became a huge inspiration. There are a lot of like, there's a big boom in this type of work for television um, after people saw the success of Amal and the Night Visitors. Yeah. Menotti had a passion for putting his shows on multiple mediums. You know, he also did radio broadcast quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Manotti was was quite the embracer of uh, new mediums. He was with it. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that was 1951, 1952. Um, so you might be wondering, where the heck are more modern things? So several 21st century composers have attempted to create a popular Christmas work for the opera medium, including Mark Adamo's Becoming Santa Claus. That was well received at the Dallas Opera in December 2015. Also successful is John Adams' Christmas Opera slash Operatorio. Operatorio. Wow. Actually, you know, that's kind of fitting. Yeah. Opera slash Oratorio. No, I like Operatorio. <laughs> I think you should take it. Operatorio. Oh. Mm. Okay. His work El Nino, which premiered in 2000, and it has been semi-staged by several opera companies and orchestras internationally. Kevin Putz. Pulitzer Prize winning opera Silent Night, which premiered in 2011, has been staged by several American opera companies. And then uh, his 2011 production was actually filmed for PBS, PBS's Great Performances by Minnesota I Opera. I should look that up. Because so, <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of Silent Night, which is kind of shocking to me considering it has a Pulitzer Prize. Right? Yeah. And it was um, performed also in 2014, but the 2011 premiere was filmed for PBS, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, I didn't know that either. I didn't know that PBS was necessarily, like, doing that kind of stuff still. Fun little behind-the-scenes. <laughs> like, with new works? Fun little behind-the-scenes moment for uh, all of you guys. So when Michelle and I were looking over the outline for this episode, <laughs> um, and I was looking at her modern ones, I was like, hey, what about the one, uh, the opera that came out, like, not too terribly long ago, that was the, the famous Christmas movie? And I was just struggling to remember the name. I was like, uh, it's a wonderful life. Which, fun fact, is partially famous because its copyright got lost, and so it's technically free for them to play on TV over and over again. They don't have to pay royalties, which is part of the reason that movie mm-hmm. got so much playtime and became such a Christmas classic. But anyway, it was adapted into an opera, and she goes, by who? And I was like, I think it's Jake Heggie. And she was like, no, no way. Because <laughs> if you know Michelle, Michelle loves Jake Heggie. And I mean... I loves love Jake Heggie. This man. So it was so I, funny that she didn't like, realize that he had written a Christmas <laughs> opera um, and that she is, in fact, a fake fan. <laughs> I'm such a fake fan. It didn't come up in any of my research, and I swear I've never heard of this. Yeah, I think like, I, I trust you. I'm I sure if I Googled I it, it exists. For the cocktail, when I was looking for something to base the cocktail on. I am so upset. <laughs> love you, Jake. Jakey. Jakey Heggie. I think part of the problem, though, with all of this, like, part of the problem with uh, Christmas opera catching on is it's very, very difficult to add new music into the Christmas canon. Yeah. The only thing I can think of, there are only a couple, like, modern songs that I can think of that people really, really love. Like, most of the recordings I hear around Christmas time are, you know, Bing Crosby and uh, Frank Sinatra, and um, I forget totally. who sings on the rudolph the red-nosed reindeer i have a couple of his versions of those songs that i listen to but you know other than like mariah carey there aren't a lot of modern um can you think of any others no yeah not new songs no yeah mariah get a lot of covers by pop artists the most recent song i can think of that like everybody knows and is it kind of into um unless you work in retail mm-hmm. and then it's your least favorite thing 
<laughs> oh goodness yeah um but then like you know aside from operas that are specifically about you know either the religious side of christmas or the secular side of of christmas um the other type of opera that often pops up around this time are operas that revolve around kind of like fairy tales or magic which is kind of interesting especially in german things like you know Massenet's Cendrillon, Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, Babes in Toyland. Especially Hansel and Gretel was actually premiered in Germany on December 23rd in 1893 and it's been a Christmas staple at the Metropolitan Opera since 1905. Oh, that's so which you funny. wouldn't think is a Christmas opera, but those kind of magical I think of Babes in Toyland as Christmas. Yeah, but those like magical-esque fairy tale things also tend to pop up especially especially in Europe. They associate the magic with with kind of Christmas time. And then, of course, La Boheme, which the first two acts obviously take place on Christmas Eve, um, is also frequently presented during some point of the Christmas season, especially, you know, at the Met, at London's Royal Opera House and Opera Australia. The Met loves doing the magic flute for Christmas, doing the children's version, Mm -hmm. which is sweet. Well, a flute is perfect for kids. Yeah, but it's not very Christmassy. Um, There's nothing Christmassy no, no, about Birdman. Birdman is elf. <laughs> um, Zarastro is Santa. Wow. You know what? Kind of true. <laughs> and um, Queen of the Night is Grinch. There we go. Solved it. <laughs> wow. But, you guys, despite all of these examples of Christmas operas, none, not a single one of these guys comes close to the international popularity of things like Handel's Messiah or Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. Those, to me, and I think to the general public, are the staples of Christmas when it comes to classical works. Yeah. And I think it's funny. So Tchaikovsky's uh, Nutcracker obviously kind of fits into just what we were talking about, like the fairy tale idea. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. super popular when it first came out. It was a little bit of a flop when it first came out. People weren't super into it, which is funny. But Handel's Messiah, mm-hmm. I don't even honestly think about as a Christmas work. To me, it's very an Easter thing. That's so funny. I like have never actually gone to see the the Easter portion of Messiah. I only know it as Christmas. Yeah, well, like yeah, that's the whole point. Is like a good portion of that does not work at Christmas time, nor would you want to sing it at Christmas time. So to me, it always fits more into like kind of the more solemn nature of what Easter week is. Mm-hmm. personally but like I, I don't mind i'll sing a hallelujah chorus <laughs> i'll yeah well it's interesting because like chorus well it's just interesting to think about i mean like nutcracker is obviously always performed at christmas and it's so to me the vibe i mean those songs are being played on the radio as well um and it's a huge tradition for people and then you know things like messiah i mean singers make their entire like couple months wages off of all their messiahs that they sing around christmas time so we have yet to have a christmas opera that really comes close to the significance of those other two the probably our biggest leader would be a mall of the night visitors but um it'd be cool to see a, a popular christmas opera right wouldn't that be such a cool activity to have with your family we just go see this Christmas opera every year. Yeah. Be cool. I would love to see something. I think I think the combo, I think Jake Heggie had a good idea with it by taking like a classic Christmas movie because it it, totally. it kind of leans into opera's tradition of using stories that everyone would have known at the time. You know, like everybody mm-hmm. understands the basic premise of Don Giovanni because it's the Don Juan story. It's literally an archetype. And so... It's a Wonderful Life yeah. has that same nice basis in everyone basically knows the story. And honestly, same thing with them all in the Night Visitors. Everyone kind of knows the story of the Three Kings. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think whatever it is has to lean on that and also needs to have some singability. Like people need to walk away being able to hum the tune. Oh, totally. That's the key. That's the key in the, the success of so many of these Christmas carols. Yeah, like I can hum. Is that they're so easily sung, obviously. I can hum the parts of Handel's Messiah and I can hum, um, you know, the dance of the sugar plum fairies and multiple parts of the Nutcracker. And like that's important when you're talking about something that has to do with tradition and is born out of this history of like people coming together to sing. So I think I think that's what it'll yeah. take. Yes, Absolutely. 
So, Jesse, let's end with this final little little question. What, in your opinion, is the most underrated Christmas song, traditional or modern? Most underrated? Okay, so let me actually split this uh, into two separate things. One that's traditional and one that's very modern. Number one, for traditional, I think, honestly, my, my most underrated is is probably We Three Kings. Like, it obviously gets playtime, but not a lot of people like it. But I think the chords in We Three Kings are, like, they always, I don't know, they make me feel warm and fuzzy. There's something uh, intriguing about how most people arrange that piece. And I also just love the chorus. Star of Wonder, Star of Light. I just don't think it gets the respect Why can it I deserves. not think of this song? I'll send you, I'll send it to you. But that's mine. I, I just don't think, version. I think We Three Kings is one of the prettier songs and it doesn't get the respect it deserves. It's repetitive, but so is every Christmas carol. What's your what's your traditional pick? Um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which I wouldn't necessarily think is like underrated. I think it gets definitely performed, maybe not as often as some of the more like religious works. But that to me is the most beautiful song. And it's so moody. <laughs> Love. Fair enough. As far as modern one goes, there is a there, there is an album by Chance the Rapper and called Merry Christmas, Little Mama. <laughs> And it's just really fun. And my brother put it on one Christmas. Merry Christmas, Lil yep. Mama. Um, and <gasps> my brother put it on. And they've I think they've revised it a couple times over the years. Like, they will re-release it with, like, updates and added songs. And I think they're doing that again this year. But it's just very fun. Like, it's very silly. Like, it's not it's nothing that's probably going to make it into the Christmas canon. But I think, like, having that on in the background at Christmas was really great. And it was just very funny. So if you're looking for something fun to to bop around to. I think my favorite underrated modern Christmas song, and this is purely for the love of my mother, is, uh, God, I don't even know what it's called, but I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Oh my gosh. I do know that. My mom thinks that that song is so cute. Like Like, I love it because she is so joyous about it. She just thinks that it's so adorable that like I therefore love it. I don't claim it to be some miraculously written song, but it it is quite cute. Yeah, but fun stuff that I don't think people give enough credit. Anyway, thank you guys for joining us for this fun little Christmas episode where we can just chat about Christmas music. Um, we all we hope you're having a very happy and safe holiday wherever you are and whatever you celebrate. We're so grateful for you guys and. You know, I hope you guys have a really lovely week and you have uh, hopefully a nice mulled wine to drink. Yes. Stay warm. Bundle up. Stay safe. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Bye. Bye.